Before we begin, I want to mention something that's coming up, something that's, uh, I think, vital, uh, vital in the life of our church, even vital in our society. Uh, At the end of March, on March the 24th and 25th, we're going to be hosting an event for parents. Uh, We're going to be hosting Harvest USA. Now, you see, it's about gospel sexuality. You know, Romans chapter 12 says, "Do do not be conformed by the world, but be transformed by a renewing of your mind. Now, conform, that means do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. I, can think, I cannot think of an area where the world tries to do that more than in the area of sexuality. And really, that's the default if our kids are not taught otherwise. And so because of the importance of it, we are hosting a conference to help parents and grandparents be able to think about what the gospel, how the gospel addresses sexuality and to be able to address in what to say. And I'm, as a minister and a parent, you know, I'm a min- I should know what to say because I'm a minister, but I don't even know always what to say uh, or when to say it. And, and so we're addressing something that's very, very crucial because we, we believe that your children are special. We believe as part of our community that, that they're going to be the future. They're going to be the world changers in the next generation. And boy, we don't want them to get tripped up by the world. So let me encourage you to sign up, parents and grandparents. Uh, mark your calendar. You're going to be hearing more about it in the days to come. Okay, so I just wanted to let you know about that. Now I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Uh, you know, I'm, this is supposed to be a sermon, but supposed to be a message. But the fact of the matter is that there really is, is only one message. And a good message has illustrations, but the truth of the matter is this is the illustration that's given to us by Jesus Christ. And so I want us to think about something this morning. I want you to think about a couple of words, okay? Uh, The first word is glancing, and the second word is gazing. You know, when you read the newspaper, if you still are accustomed to doing that, you, you glance at the headlines, and you gaze, and you focus upon the parts that are interesting to you, the parts that you want to read. Or, or maybe you, you're working on something with the TV on, and occasionally you raise your eyes and you glance at the TV. Or, or, but if there's a show that's on there that you're really interested in, you, you focus on it. Like a sporting event, if you're a Grizzlies fan and the Grizzlies are playing. Or maybe when the Super Bowl was on, you, you glanced at the game and gazed at the commercials because that's what you were most interested in. Unless you were a fan, then you would watch the game. And I wondered, I wonder, I wonder how many of us, and I've been guilty of this, glance at our Bibles more than we gaze at them. So today what I want us to do is I don't want us to miss this opportunity by glancing at this table. I want us to gaze at this table, to focus upon communion and what all is going on here. This is a table that's placed before us Really, by Jesus Christ, we are obeying him. Christian churches from many, 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 all different cultures have celebrated this over the centuries. Uh, Today, there are churches that are meeting, some like us, some not like us, some overseas, some they're meeting in secret to where if they were found out, they would be persecuted and possibly arrested, all here for this table. No other organization has a table that's anything like this, and no one ever will. And someday, we'll no longer have this. This is a reminder 
of the presence of Jesus Christ. And there will come a time when we don't have this because we will be in his actual presence. presence, And our faith will have turned to sight. But for now, let's gaze at this table. I invite you to focus your eyes upon it. And one of the things that the Bible does, and one of the things that John chapter 6 does, is it helps us focus, helps us point to this table. So I've come up with several reasons out of there, not, not all of them, I've just pulled some out, to help us think as we, and help us to focus as we come this morning. So John chapter 6, it starts out very simply. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw, saw the signs that he was doing. So, so Jesus, Jesus had been going nonstop for six months, maybe a year. He had been healing. You know, he had, he had uh, uh, turned water into wine. He had healed an official's son. Uh, he, had, he had healed a person beside a pool. And he was doing many other miracles. And John reminds us, because the Gospel of John, written by the apostle, tells us that by believing we might have life in his name and he is setting forth through these signs and wonders and miracles and his teaching and all the episodes that he's recording that's not an exhaustive list but to remind us that Jesus is really who he says he is. So as we come to chapter 6, Jesus has attracted quite a, quite a following. Some followed him because they really liked excitement. They were curious. They were investigating. Some followed him because they were his disciples. And then some were following him because they didn't like what he was doing. He was disrupting their lifestyle, especially the religious leaders of the day, and they actually wanted him killed. But the majority of people were onlookers. He was, the, he was the best game in town. He was where all the excitement was. He was doing things that nobody else had ever done before, so they were following him. He leaves. He wants to take a little bit of a break. He wants to rest with his guys, the disciples, and be refreshed. And so as he crosses over and he gets to a hillside on the northeastern shore, the Sea of Galilee, probably with the sea in the background, time of year where we suspect that the hillsides were all green, he sees multitudes of people, a crowd. It's 5,000 men and their families. They were there for Passover, so they were dressed in their Sunday best, coming over the hillside, settling in the grass of that field. So he looks at him, and he looks at him with compassion. And then we pick up in uh, verse 4, verse 5. He turns to Philip. Now, Philip was a local. He was a disciple from there. He turns to him, he says, Hey, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip looks at the people, and he, you know, Jesus said this to test him because Jesus knew what he was about to do. But he asked Philip, and what does Philip say? Philip calculates and he says, you know what? It's not possible that we could feed all these people on such short notice. And even if we could, it would take eight months wages in order to do that. Now, I want you to get this. Look at what Peter, uh, look at what Philip did. Philip admitted to Jesus that he was unable, that he couldn't do it. He admitted his inability. He said, we don't have the ability to accomplish this. So Jesus, he asked the question to really test Philip, and Philip spoke the truth. Philip was right, so don't miss this. He admitted to Jesus that what he was asking 
Philip was unable to do. And sometimes that is a good place for us to be. Because what Philip was about to see was that in his inability, he was about to see Jesus doing something in his divine strength. And that's a radical idea. But that's a fundamental principle. It's, it's a core principle that his strength is made perfect in our weakness, that, that his ableness, if that's a word, is seen in our unableness. And you know what that is? That is faith. That is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus is able to do something, die on the cross for our sins, grant us salvation, that no matter how hard we try, that's something that we cannot do. That's the gospel. And Jesus... Uh, chooses the weak and chooses the weakness in our lives to confound the wise. And he changes the things that we are unable to do into things that he is able to do. So we come to this table admitting our inability. And the next time perhaps you find yourself in a situation that you can't handle, be glad. Be glad because we can be glad for this table. It reminds us of our inability. And sometimes our inability is a blessing because it causes us to come to the bread of of life. And that's the predicament that his disciples are in. And that's where we are many times as his disciples. We admit our inability and it frees the Lord up to demonstrate his ability in whatever area of life that applies. Let's get back to the story. Look in verse 8. So, so, so Andrew's there, and Andrew sees kind of what's going on, and, and Andrew says, well, here's a little fella here. Uh, he's got five barley loaves and two pickle minnows. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he, could, he could do it, but, I, you know, it's in the, you read into it, and, you know, I still don't think that's, that's really going to be enough. He just kind of says, well, here's, here's this guy. And then Jesus takes over in verse 10. He organizes everyone. He has them sit down. And then he takes the, the, the five barley loaves and the two fish and he blesses it. He gives thanks. And then he has his disciples spread it to the entire crowd. And it says that the crowd ate to their full, that they had more than enough, so much, that at the end of their meal, there's 12 baskets left over. That is abundant grace. There's abundant grace at this table. Gaze at it. Think of yourself. As you come here and as you partake of the elements of the table, think, you know, little is much in the hands of God. He just asks us, like this little boy, to be available. He wants to show his ability and our inability, and he wants us to be available for him to do that. I'm going to give you another reason, something else to think about. Look in verse 14. Uh, in verse 15. So the people are seeing what all is going on, and they're kind of excited. Here, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with poor man's bread and two pickled minnows. And so they look at him and they say, uh, uh, this is the prophet. This is the one who's coming to the world. Now, he was a prophet. They were defining him. He was more than a prophet, though. He is the, he is the, the, the ultimate of all the prophets. He is the ultimate of all the priests, and he is the fulfillment of not just the prophets and the priests, but he is the fulfillment, fulfillment of the kings. He is so much more than just this, but that's how they were defining him. And then in verse 15, 
it says, perceiving, Jesus is, that they were about to take him and by force and make him king, he withdrew. You see, Jesus knew what was going on. It's a <clears throat> fascinating study uh, in, in, in human nature. Now think about it. They're saying, this is the guy we want, <clears throat> that we want as our king. <clears throat> this is the guy that has healed people. This is the guy that, is, that has healed the official son. This is the guy that had healed the person by the pool and who, whatever, whatever else, other healings that he had done. We want to make him our king because he heals people. We've got a healthcare plan all built in this one fella. We want to make him king. And not only that, but he can take something from someone and then he can multiply it and then he can spread it, transfer it and spread it around so that we all get our bellies full. And that's really what we want. We want someone who will take care of us and keep our bellies full. That's prosperity. And we want to elect him as our king because he will take care of us. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that people sought to make him king on their terms. He'll keep our bellies full. But the fact of the matter, and his whole point in his ministry is this, that life works when it is lived on his terms. No other terms than his terms. He says, I will establish my kingdom on my terms. Remember when he was in the, in the wilderness early in the gospel of Matthew and he was tempted by Satan and then Satan said, if you do this, I'll give you this. I'll give you this if you do this. On and on and on. And he kept coming back. He, say, he kept quoting scripture. And what he was saying is, no, my kingdom is established on no other terms than my terms. So as we partake of these elements, as we gaze upon this table this morning, Maybe it's good to reflect and ask, Lord, how have I been living my life? Have I been living my life a little too much on my terms? Lord, would you grant me the desire, give me the power, give me the ability to enjoy my life as it is lived on your terms? Our inability shows his ability. He wants us to be available. And our lives are meant to be enjoyed when they're lived on his terms. Now we move on over to verse 22. Some things have happened. He'd walked on water, so he'd gone back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then when we pick up the story, what we see is that uh, uh, the crowd was looking for him, but he had gone. And so uh, they said, where is he? So they all get in their boats and they go over there and they find him. And they say, where have you been? Sort of, why did you leave us? Uh, we, we're hungry again. We like what you're, what you're doing for us. We're, we're curious about you. And then Jesus starts addressing them around verse 26 and verse 27. He said, you guys, you, you follow me because of these, these miracles that I do. And now you're following me because you want some more food. In other words, you're coming to me because of what you get out of it. And you're missing the point. And he continues. And he says, don't work for food that spoils, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And they still don't get it. They're still thinking about their wants. They're thinking of some, some bread factory that spills out sweet bread that, that never spoils. And, and then they ask, what do we have to do to get it? You know, what work must we do? Where do we apply? 
Where do we go? Where do we fill the farms out? What job do we have to do? How can we earn this bread? And then in verse 29, it's a key verse. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the heart of everything. It's this. We don't follow Jesus because of what he does, as amazing as that is. But we follow Jesus because of who he is. And so he says to them, there's, there's an amazing response, amazing response after that. The crowd says, okay, in verse 30, he says, they say, well, then give us a sign. I mean, come on, what has he been doing? And yet they say, give us a sign. And they say, well, now, wait a minute. You know, our, our, our father Moses he gave us bread from heaven. I mean, I mean, you, that's a really good trick you did, Jesus. I mean, you started with something, though, and then you multiplied. But, but Moses, he started from nothing, and he gave us bread. And so Jesus looks right at them, and he says, Truly, 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 I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And then in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who ever comes to me will never hunger. He who comes to me will never thirst. He says, I've come to, I've come to give you life. I am that bread. I've come to give you manna because I am the manna. I've come to quench your thirst because I am the living waters. You want peace? I am peace. Love? I am love. The point is that everything that Jesus Christ gives, he is. In other words, don't line up for more bread. He says, line up for me. You know, there's a, there's a lot of bread in the world. And we're fortunate that, that there's a lot of places you can go to get bread. And we're able to go a lot of those places to do that. But I think perhaps as we come to this table this morning, as we celebrate uh, communion this morning, maybe, maybe something that we want to always reflect upon is this. Is Jesus the bread of my life? So that's four things. I just have one more. One more in this chapter, something to think about, and it's found in verse 37. So this is, this is, this is fascinating to me. Uh, if you look at verse 37, here's what he says. He's summing up the discussion that he's having with the crowd. And he says, all that the Father gives me, remember that, all that the Father gives me will what? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. People should never think, and I've had these conversations before, well, I want to come to Jesus, but what if I find out I'm not one of the chosen ones? Well, if you look at this verse, you don't have to worry. That person doesn't exist because everyone that comes to him has been given to Jesus by the Father. What wonderful assurance that Jesus will receive every single person that cries out to him, that believes that he is who he is, that knows that they're a sinner and that he is the only one that can save them and his life and his death and his resurrection is sufficient enough. 
to save them. What wonderful assurance. But here's the amazing part. Back to verse 37. All that the Father has given me. What great words of comfort. If you're a believer and you have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what this passage is saying? It's saying that every believer is a gift to the Son from the Father. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you're like me, sometimes you you might not feel like you're being a very good gift to Jesus, but you know what? It doesn't matter. If you're a believer, you are a gift, and Jesus has no interest in returning you. That's what the passage says. Now, why is it that we are such a wonderful gift? Because we're cool? Because we can do a lot of good things? Because we have a lot of abilities? No. You are assured that you are a gift to Jesus because you are given to him by the Father, because of the Father. He gives us to his Son. And on that basis, when you come to this table, know your assurance. Know how special that we really are because Jesus is glad to keep every gift that the Father, his Father, gives to him. Blows me away. Now think about this. John 3.16, familiar verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to whom? So that whosoever to whom believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know what happens when you put those two together? You talk about assurance. Is it everyone that the Father gives to Jesus, every believer, is a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son is a gift to us from the Father. Isn't that amazing? We we are locked in the greatest gift exchange in all of eternity. That's the assurance that we have when we can come to this table. So this morning I ask you, Are you glancing at the table or are you gazing at it? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful truth. We thank you that somehow you've got it worked out in life that your ability is magnified even in our inability and shortcomings. And you just want to use us and you simply ask that we're available and that you have given us life to enjoy and it's meant to be enjoyed on your terms. And then indeed, we're so grateful as we come to this table this morning that you have sent your son to be the bread of life. And we can have assurance as we come this morning that we are secure in that relationship because we are a gift to Jesus and he is a gift to us. Father, we pray that you would make this real through the power of your Holy Spirit in the way that you seem most fitting. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.